Good morning, Redemption Tempe. I'm excited to be with you guys. Uh, my name is John Crawford. I am the community's pastor here. And uh, I'm excited to dive back into our series in Ephesians. We've been trekking through here for the last number of months. And last week we took a break uh, from our series in Ephesians to uh, revisit Seeking Shalom, which is our vision series as a church. And so Ricardo preached last week on uh, Seeking Shalom. And then two weeks ago, just to kind of briefly, briefly recap where, we, where we've been, um, two weeks ago we started into the second half of the letter of Ephesians. We started in Ephesians chapter 4, Ricardo preached, and what Paul is laying out starting in Ephesians chapter 4 for the rest of Ephesians, he's unpacking what it looks like to live as the renewed humanity. And so what, what we see is that God has created unity through the work of the gospel, and we've seen this throughout the entire book of Ephesians thus far. And so God is the one that's done the work of creating unity, and now we are called to participate in that work as we maintain unity. And so Ricardo talked about there's three postures that we are called to embody, that Paul urges us to embody in the first six verses of Ephesians 4, which are humility, gentleness, and patience. And so this morning, we're going to pick up in verse 7, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 14. And before we dive in, um, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we are able to gather together corporately as your people. Lord, we know that you are the author of life and sustainer of life. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of life today that we were able even to get out of bed to come here, Lord, that you fill our lungs with air to breathe. And so, Father, we acknowledge that you are sovereign and in control. And Lord, we ask that your spirit would be present among us this morning, that your spirit would move in this place, that your spirit would give me the words to say, that your spirit would speak through me. And Lord, that you would stir our hearts and our affections for you, that we would worship you rightly for who you are, and that we would see that we have an integral role in your story, in your mission for the sake of the world. It's in your name, amen. All right, our ushers are gonna make their way down the aisle. Um, if you need a Bible, please raise your hand. They'd be more than happy to give you a copy of God's Word. If you do not own a copy of God's Word, if you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word so that you can grow in your understanding of the good news of the gospel. And so, before we dive into uh, Ephesians 4, 7 through 14, what we are going to see throughout these verses we're going to see that Jesus is the victorious king who gives gifts to his people to empower them for mission. Not only empower them for mission, but also to be united and to grow in maturity. So Jesus is the victorious king who gives gifts to his people to equip and empower them for mission, to be united and to grow into maturity. So let's dive in here in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. So we see, starting in verse 7, that, that Christ is giving gifts. And this is an overflow of his grace. And so Christ is giving gifts, and this giving of gifts that Christ is doing is actually reenacting Psalm 68, which is what the quotations in verse 8 is quoting. And so Paul is actually quoting Psalm 68 because it celebrated God being a victorious God 
as a divine warrior who overpowered and overthrew evil at the Mount of Bashan. And so rather than it actually being a direct quote from Psalm 68, what Paul is actually doing is he's referencing the entire Psalm 68. He's referencing the entire movement of the Psalm because what that entire Psalm is showing us is it's showing us that God is the victorious God who ascends on high and then he gives gifts to his people. And so the reason why Paul is drawing on Psalm 68 is because it prefigures the work of Christ. It shows us that this is what Christ does. Verse 9. And in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, that is the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And so we have a lot of ascending, descending, ascending going on in these verses. And so Jesus is the one that is being talked about here. Jesus descends to the lower regions. He descends to the earth in his incarnation. Jesus puts on flesh. He leaves the comforts of heaven. He puts on flesh to dwell among us. Jesus descends, and what we see is that in Jesus descending, he disarms the rulers and authorities. He disarms the powers, and then he delivers the ultimate death blow to death itself in the cross and in his resurrection. And when Jesus resurrects, when he raises from the dead and overthrows the powers, what we see is that then he ascends. He ascends into the heavens where he is sitting on the throne as king over all of creation, where he is ruling and reigning as its rightful Lord because Jesus is the victorious king. He has triumphed over all of the powers of darkness. You see, we see that Jesus is victorious. And then Paul goes on in verse 10 to say that he might fill all things. And this is actually echoing Ephesians 1 verse 10 about the scope of Christ's redemptive work, about the scope of the redemption that he accomplished in the cross. You see, it's showing us that the scope goes as far as the curse is found to all things, that Christ might fill all things, that it's cosmic in its scope because Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. And so what we see is that this victorious king is the one who gives gifts. Timothy Gombas, who's a theologian, he wrote a really, really helpful book that uh, pretty much all the pastors at Redemption read, um, kind of preparing for the Ephesians, uh, the year of Ephesians, if we want to say. Um, but it's a book called The Drama of Ephesians, which I highly recommend. He says this in that book about, about God giving gifts. He says, God gives gifts to empower the church to be faithful so that the church can truly embody its identity as the incarnation of Jesus on earth. And so what he's saying here is the reason why God gives gifts to his people is so that we can faithfully embody, faithfully live on mission and show the world what Jesus is like. Verse 11. So we see here that it says, and he, that is Jesus, and Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers... And so we see that these certain gifts that Jesus gives are certain roles and functions. And they serve the function of equipping all of God's people, every one of God's people, for ministry and building up the church, building up the body. These five gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, are important to understand 
it's not that these are not exhaustive lists. Like, this is not an exhaustive list of gifts, okay? So these five giftings that, that Paul is highlighting and drawing out here, this is not an exhaustive list of gifts. We see that there's actually multiple lists throughout the entire New Testament of giftings. None of the lists are exhaustive, and actually when you look at the... Uh, when you look at all the lists combined, there's more than 20 gifts that are listed that God gives to his people, and even those are not exhaustive. And so you see that there's things that range from healing to encouragement to doing acts of mercy, many, many other gifts. And so it's important that we know that this isn't exhaustive, these aren't the only five, but that these five gifts listed here are for the function of leading, specifically leading God's people, but in that they're not offices, these are not the offices of elder and deacon, although elders and deacons and those offices will have some of these gifts to lead. But what we see is that these gifts belong to God, and he gives them to his church for the sake of the body and for the sake of the world. God gives these gifts to the body, both men and women, so that they would be used. You see, the roles and functions here, these five kind of roles and functions that we're looking at, you can kind of think of them similar to a coach, similar to coaches. Coaches who help the church understand our role as God's people, and not only our role as God's people, but then how to live that role out faithfully, how to live out that role, how to perform in that role. And so think of them almost as a coaching type of role. And so what are these gifts exactly? Words like apostle, prophet, we've heard those. Some of us may have absolutely no idea what these are. Uh, some of us come from various faith traditions, various backgrounds, maybe even other religions. And so there's a lot of kind of ambiguity, maybe even some baggage that these terms have. And so just for the sake of clarity, we're not going to go in depth, but briefly kind of unpack what these five gifts are. So first we have apostles. Honestly, this is the trickiest one to define, and there's some gray area that kind of surrounds apostles, uh, mainly because the word apostle has multiple meanings and definitions throughout the Bible, and we see this, so you can't like clearly define what an apostle is, but one of the things that we see is that apostle was a foundational role in the early church, right? We see this with Jesus' twelve the 12 apostles. And so obviously there's a unique kind of position here that these apostles have. But what we see is that when Judas is replaced by Matthias, the apostle Peter lays out in Acts chapter 1 verses 21 and 22 the qualifications or we could say the requirements of an apostle. And these include being with Jesus, accompanying Jesus the entire time that he was with his disciples. This is from the baptism of John to Jesus' ascension into the heavenly realm, right? But also there's another qualification, and that's to be a witness of Christ's resurrection. So clearly with those requirements that Peter lays out in Acts, this is a unique position that, uh, of apostle. But what we also see in the Bible is that an essential qualification of being an apostle is being both called and then sent by Christ. And so Paul is an apostle that wrote the letter of Ephesians, and he was not one of the 12. And so how did Paul become an apostle? Well, on the road to Damascus, the resurrected Christ meets him, and he becomes a witness of the resurrected Jesus, and then Jesus calls him and sends him, which is how he becomes an apostle. But even more than that, we also see that the word in and of itself, apostle just means sent, or the one who is sent. And so it's a gray area because what exactly does that look like? 
It can look many different ways. And some of, some of the ways that the apostolic gifting is operative today, because it is operative, um, the apostolic gift is operative usually in more kind of groundbreaking initiatives, kind of visionary work, um, groundbreaking initiatives. We see this in pioneering efforts. We see this in church planting. We see it in missionary movements, because usually the apostolic gifting lends itself more towards groundbreaking initiatives. Uh, um, profit. So prophet, another one that, that we need to unpack quickly here is that a prophet in the Old Testament was the spokesperson for Yahweh, literally the mouthpiece for God. They spoke on God's behalf. And prophets would both foretell and then also foretell. Foretelling means they would anticipate and be able to tell what was coming in the future. They anticipated the Messiah, the, the one that was to come. They anticipated Jesus, but then they also would foretell, meaning that they would speak out against their current situation, the injustice, the socio-political kind of situation. Whenever there was injustice, the prophets of the Old Testament would speak out and call God's people to repentance. And so what we see is that prophets would literally speak on behalf of God, and then they pointed in anticipation of the coming Messiah. But with prophecy, it's important that we know that it is from the Lord, and so that it's not false prophecy. And so in Deuteronomy 13 and 18, there's, it specifies very clear ways to test prophecy to make sure that it is from the Lord. So prophets today. Are there prophets today? Well, in this same sense, there are not prophets today because Jesus is the consummate prophet. He's the final and complete prophet who speaks on behalf of God. He is the one that all of the other prophets pointed to, and he is the greatest of all the prophets. He speaks on behalf of God. But with that, prophecy and prophetic gifting is still operative in the church today, in our world today. And so here's a few ways that this can look. This is not an exhaustive list. There's other ways that this can look. But here's three kind of common ways that prophetic gifting can operate today. One is through special insight into God's word. And this is by listening and hearing from the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit actually speaks. And we have the ability through a prophetic gifting to listen to the Spirit and have special insight into God's word. This is not God providing new revelation. It's important that we understand that. God's not dropping new revelation to add to the Bible as authoritative, but he allows people with prophetic gifting to have special insight so that God's people can understand his word, to provide insight for the people of God. Another way um, that prophetic giftings kind of operate today is by having, an, having a voice to speak out against injustice and the social sins of our day. And so we see this once again with the Old Testament. This is what the prophets were doing. The socio-political prophets, they were speaking out against, against injustice. And this is one of the ways that prophetic gifting can operate today. And then lastly is by bringing conviction of sin to unbelievers, not to the people of God, but to those outside of the people of God, is a unique prophetic ability to bring about conviction of sin to people who are those outside of the people of God, those who do not yet believe. And obviously, we are unable on our own to bring about conviction. Humans do not convict people of sin. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so obviously, the Spirit is at work in this as well. But some people have the prophetic gifting to be able to preach and teach, handle God's word, speak truth into people's lives to bring about a unique kind of conviction to unbelievers. It's important that with this specific kind of operative uh, prophetic gifting, 
this one in particular is a unique way of handling God's word. Without God's word, it's actually not prophecy. And so, just like in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament with Deuteronomy 13 and 18, we still need to test prophecy today, prophetic gifting today, to make sure that it is of the Lord. So, here's kind of one of my experiences with this. I'm 21 years old. I'm not a Christian at the time, living in sin, trying to figure out life, all these existential questions. I'm kind of at a fork in the road, wrestling through things, trying to figure out life, right? And so my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, Marika, um, the two of us, we start attending this church. And so um, it's, you know, it's a large church. Sanctuary is bigger than this. And I have never met the pastor before. The dude doesn't know who I am doesn't know my story, doesn't know the questions I'm wrestling with, things that I'm struggling with, and uh, we start attending there. Probably, honestly, it's, it's probably within the first few weeks. It was a very short time after we started attending there, and I, I remember it like yesterday. It was very clear. Remember where I was sitting. Remember the sermon. Remember everything. Remember the illustrations this dude used in his sermon, and what I would say, because I was not a Christian, is the pastor was able to handle God's word in a prophetic way. There was some sort of prophetic gifting there because he had never met me, didn't know my story, and it was literally as if this dude was preaching and he was talking directly to me. And obviously the spirit is at work in that to bring about conviction, but it was almost as if this guy that had never met me had been following me around for months, like, you know, recording my life. Like, oh yeah, this is where he goes, this is what he does, this is, you know, this is the questions he's asking. Because he was able to handle God's word in a prophetic way that it brought about conviction of my sin as an unbeliever, which actually read, led to repentance and faith, and that was part of my conversion, was in that moment, was the way that he handled God's word. And so I know just from having conversations with some of you is that like you've, you've felt that as well. People have felt that when Ricardo preaches or when certain people preach is they feel like, man, like, is this dude like, did he... Was he with me last night? Was he peeking out over my shoulder? Like, he's, he's talking to me, you know? And that, that's the work of the Spirit, but there is a prophetic way to preach. So, the other three don't need as much unpacking. Evangelists, these are heralds of the good news. These are people who share the good news of the gospel with those who do not yet believe, with unbelievers. Then shepherds are those who oversee, nurture, care for God's flock, the people of God, the church. And then teachers. Teachers explain and instruct God's word to people so that they can not only understand it, but so that they can be formed by it. So you see, God has given a diversity of giftings. The gifts are very diverse. And within the diversity, within God's design for his church, all of these diverse gifts actually help us be united as one body. And so Unity does not mean uniformity, and we see that even within the giftings. And so all of these gifts are diverse. These five gifts are diverse, but they all share a common purpose. They all share a common purpose that we will see in verse 12, which is for equipping. And so go with me to verse 12. It says, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So we see that these gifts are given to these people in order that they would equip the saints for the work of ministry. So what does equip mean? Well, equip means that these people that have these gifts, these people that are leading God's people, are supposed to help and encourage the people of God to discover, develop, and then utilize their giftings for the sake of God's kingdom 
and for the sake of building up the body. So I'll meet people, I'll meet uh, well-meaning Christians that love the Lord, and you know, we'll have a conversation, and they're like, man, you know, I, I think it's so great that you, you know, you're in pastoral ministry, and you're doing full-time ministry, and man, you're, you're really doing work for the kingdom. And what I often want to reply, but I don't always do it because it takes a lot of unpacking, but I often want to turn to them and say, hey, you know what, I think it's great that you're in full-time ministry too. Because what is interesting about this verse is that these verses in 11 and 12, Paul does not write, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints, comma, and then do all the work of ministry. That's not what the verse says. That's not what the text says. The text says that he gave these giftings so that these people would equip the saints for the work of ministry. So... This is crucial. It's crucial that we understand this. It's crucial that we not only understand it, but that we believe it, that every single one of us, every single one of God's people, every single Christian is in full-time ministry. It's not just for pastors. It's not just for missionaries that are overseas. All of us are in full-time ministry, and here's why. The minute you surrender your life to Jesus, and you start following him, and you become a Christian, you get a new vocation. Your vocation is that you become a witness, a witness of Jesus and his kingdom. The question is, will you be a good witness or not? It's not whether or not we're witnesses. This is our identity as the people of God. Thanks. <laughs> Tell Ricardo that. <clears throat> so what we see is that God has given gifts to his people for the purpose of living on mission in the world. Every single one of us is in full-time ministry wherever God has strategically placed us. God is sovereign, and he has placed us in the places we live, the places we work. All of these are strategic, and they're a part of God's mission. Our vocation as God's witnesses, as witnesses of the kingdom, is we have the unique opportunity to display the glory of God through the work of our hands, through our work. We have the unique opportunity to display the love of Jesus through sacrificially serving and washing the feet of others. We have the unique ability to display the power of the Spirit by opening up our mouths and sharing the good news of the gospel. You see, since the kingdom of God is not merely a spiritual kingdom, and when I say that, the kingdom of God is not an otherworldly kingdom that is only concerned with our souls. That's not what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God has broken into our world through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and so the kingdom of God is here. And since the kingdom of God is not merely a spiritual kingdom, every single one of us are called to be agents and witnesses of his kingdom in every single sphere of life. You see, we all have an integral role in God's mission as the body of Christ. He has given us gifts, and then he has not only given us gifts, but he's empowered us with his spirit so that we can be deployed into the world, sent into the world. So think about the army. When you join the army, I never have. Um, I wouldn't make it through day one of basic training. Uh, that's honestly... I got some buddies that are in the military that are sitting in the sanctuary that are probably nodding their hair like, head like, yeah, we know this dude. He wouldn't make it through basic training. Not even day one. 
So I always joked around, you know, I'm too old for, a draft, for the draft to happen now. But if a draft ever happened, I also cut hair. So I always said, like, hey, if I get drafted, I'm just going to be a naval barber. I'm going to live in San Diego, and I'm going to be cutting, I'm going to be doing fades on people at, at the naval base in San Diego, you know. But I haven't served in the military. Uh, many of my friends have, and uh, many of you have. And so I'm, I'm thankful for your guys' service for our country. Um, and so you guys know this uh, know this more than I do. Uh, I got this from my friends in the army. So when you join the army, uh, you're actually not equipped to be a soldier. You don't know how to embody being a soldier. So what do you do? After you enlist, they send you to basic training, what I wouldn't make a day through. Um, they send you to basic training so that you can actually learn the how-tos of the army. And then after you go to basic training, you actually go to specialized training where then you learn more skills specifically for different areas of the army. Without these trainings, you actually wouldn't be equipped to be in the army and be a soldier. The equipping received in the training actually helps people and soldiers, the men and women in the army, discover, develop, and then use their skills that they've learned in order to be in the army, in order to serve the army. But let's just say, what if? But what if the officers and the people that are doing the training in the army, the trainers, let's just say that they decided that they weren't going to equip men and women for service. They weren't going to equip men and women for service. And what if they decided for whatever selfish motives to kind of hoard all of their experience, all of their knowledge, all of their skills, all of their giftings that they have gained in the army, they decide to hoard them for, their, for themselves so that they can build a name, make a, make a name and build a platform for themselves. Could they actually accomplish the mission that the army has on their own? No, never. Well, why? Because the mission that the army has is far, far too big for just the officers and the people doing the training. They have to equip men and women. They have to. It's, it's a necessity to equip men and women because the mission is far too big for them. They need to equip these men and women so that they can be deployed, sent out, and utilize their skills in order to accomplish the mission that the army has. In the same way, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers all need to equip God's people. It's necessary that these gifted individuals equip God's people for the work of ministry because God's mission is much, much bigger than just them. God's mission is as broad as all of creation, and he has gifted and called every single one of his people into full-time ministry so they can be witnesses of his kingdom wherever they are. So my friends tell me, who have been in the army, that the majority of the people that actually join the army actually want to be deployed. But what about us as the people of God? Do we want to be deployed? Do we want to be sent out into the world? And this is not necessarily being sent overseas like military deployment. Yes, some of you have been called overseas, and yes, some of you will return overseas and serve overseas and carry the gospel to the nations. And yes, praise God for that. We need it because God's mission is as broad as all of creation. It's for the nations, right? But what about those who are here that God has strategically placed and called here in this city do we want to be deployed into the marketplace where we work? Do we want to be deployed into the neighborhoods where we live? Do we want to be deployed into the recreational spaces we inhabit where we relax and play? 
You see, what we need to do is we need to reimagine our work and see it as ministry that enables us the ability to display God's glory to the watching world, to be able to seek the shalom, seek the welfare, seek the flourishing of others. Through our work, we have the unique opportunity that you guys just heard about with an all of life interview. We have a unique opportunity to, it's the questions we ask in the interview. They're, they're formative, we ask the same questions so that we think through this in our own work. We have the unique opportunity to be able to reflect various aspects of God's character to the watching world through the work of our hands. Through our work, we have the unique ability to love our neighbors very well in very tangible ways through the work that we do. And through our work, we have a unique vantage point into this, the ways that sin affects our world because through our work, we get to press against these effects of sin. We get to see, just like Akindeli said, like the cracks and crevices where sin is living, sin is festering and it's manifesting and God has called us to press back against the effects of sin in the world through our work. So think about construction, plumbing, banking, engineering, education, medicine, law enforcement, fitness, art, social work, motherhood, architecture, Uber drivers, being a bartender, being a waitress, whatever it is, all of this is ministry. You see, I actually think our church does this well. And it's one of the reasons why I love our congregation. It's one of the reasons why I love it because I love the all of life interviews we do. I love getting to hear about how people are trying to faithfully live out the gospel in their workspaces, through the work that they do, through the gifts that God has given them. People are trying to embody the gospel in these places. Many of you here have reimagined your work in light of the biblical story, and many of you are doing amazing work, and you're actually viewing it as ministry. And it's really, really encouraging. As a pastor who works here, it's encouraging to see you guys as the church being the body, exercising your gifts, and living on mission. As I prepared this sermon, I thought about just the people in our congregation off the top of my head that I know that are doing really good work and viewing it as ministry. And there were countless names that came to mind, and I, and I was so encouraged. And so thank you guys for doing that, and let us continue in that. This is one of the reasons why I'm bivocational. That's a word that not everybody knows. Most pastors know it, but this is what it means. Uh, being bivocational means that I work two places, pretty easy, um, and I feel called to it. And so uh, I'm a hairdresser. I've, I've been a hairdresser, and I cut hair for uh, the last 14 years, and um, I'm also on pastoral staff here. And so I feel called to the salon, though. I feel called to be a hairdresser. I'm not a pastor because I, I'm not bivocational because I can't get a job as a pastor. I'm bivocational because I see my work as a hairdresser having intrinsic value for the sake of the kingdom that God deeply cares about. But it wasn't always like that. So I started doing hair right out of high school, went to hair school instead of college. And um, as you guys heard, uh, I became a Christian when I was 21. And so become a Christian the first few years, walking with Jesus, uh, trying to really be faithful. You know, I'm zealous. I'm a new Christian. I'm like, man, I just want to, I want to do like kingdom work. And so I start to have this kind of crisis about hairdressing because I'm like, man, this, it, this seems really worldly, you know? This seems like a worldly, like, industry. I might need to, like, get out of it, you know? Um, because, man, people are vain. Everybody just cares about their external appearance. And, like, man, like, the Bible says the Lord cares about the interior, right? The internal, like, the Lord cares about the heart, which is true. 
But at the same time, like, I was actually having this crisis where I'm like, maybe I need to exit out of hairdressing. And so uh, I get married and uh, start actually going to college. Never went to college. And so start going to college, not fully knowing, like, my future trajectory. But part of that was wanting to have, like, an exit strategy of, like, man, you know, I just, I just really don't think my work matters. I don't think God cares about it. And I kind of think it's meaningless. And then... Um, probably about six years ago now, um, before we really started to talk through like all of life stuff here, um, I started to get uh, kind of turned on to more of like the faith and work, all the stuff that Jim does so well here, um, but all the faith and work kind of discussions, reading books, listening to podcasts, and really starting to develop a more robust theology of work, starting to have a more uh, comprehensive understanding of the gospel and kind of the all of life stuff that we all talk about. And, and really what I started to see is that my work as a hairdresser, in and of itself, even if I never share the gospel and do evangelism with anybody, the work in and of itself still is good work that God deeply cares about. The work has intrinsic value. Many of us oftentimes think our work doesn't matter unless it's a platform for me to evangelize to my coworker or customer or whatever it is. But even if we never get that opportunity, the work in and of itself is still good because I'm able to reflect the various aspects of God's character to my clients, to the people that I work with. I'm able to love my neighbor well in very tangible ways through hairdressing. I'm able to press back against the effects of sin in people's lives and in the industry, places that I see it. I'm able to press against the effects of the fall, and then more than anything, I'm able to cultivate and maintain deep relationships with people who are outside of our faith community. And we need pastors that are full-time. Like, we need men and women that are on staff here. We need them full-time. I personally feel called to be bivocational because of the opportunity, because of the gifting God's given me with a, with a craft like cutting hair. I'm able to do it. And this is, this is why. Because the work in and of itself is good. It is kingdom work. Once again, if God's mission is as broad as creation, that means that the work of hairdressers matter in the kingdom of God. He's reconciling all things, including hairdressing, to himself. But here's the problem. The problem is that ministry is thought of different ways. Being in ministry is thought of different ways. And there's three common paradigms. There's going to be images on the screen here. The first paradigm is a pyramid. So this is what this paradigm of ministry looks like. Not quite like that, but pyramid. Um, the pastor is at the top of the pyramid. Pastor's at the top of the pyramid doing the important work because they're doing spiritual work that is concerned with people's souls, and so this is the important work, and then everybody else that isn't a pastor or like a full-time missionary is down here at a lesser rank at the bottom of the pyramid doing work that really doesn't matter to God. And it's not really ministry, it's not mission, and so this is one paradigm, the pyramid. The second paradigm is the bus, the bus paradigm. And the bus paradigm is where the pastor is actually the driver of the bus. The pastor's in the driver's seat, and he's driving. And people get on board. The bus is filled with people that are actually on board with living on mission. They're on board with, you know, God's mission in the world and the gospel, and people are on board, but everyone sits passively, and they let the pastor drive and do all the work. And they just kind of, they're, they're not really... They're not really ready to be deployed. They're not really ready to be sent out because they might get their hands dirty. And so, hey, you know what? We'll, we'll be on board, but we're going to let you, the paid professional in ministry, we're going to let you kind of drive this thing and we'll kind of sit back. And then the other 
paradigm, which is how the Bible talks about the church and how Paul here in these verses talks about the church is that it's a body. Um, this is a terrible image of a body. Just, just want to say that, uh, yeah, this is bad, but there's a reason. Between Greg Lindsay and myself, uh, we could not find a better picture of the human body that was not overly sexualized and risque due to our overly sexualized culture. And so we searched and searched and searched. And so this doesn't do much justice to our, our paradigm of body being that these are like wooden built Lego figures. But um, you get the picture. Thanks, Internet and our overly sexualized society. So the body. This is uh, how Paul talks about it here. And this is every single person, every part of the body has a distinct function, a distinct function, and when all of the parts, the whole body is exercised, it actually grows and works properly. See, when each part of the body is exercised, the body as a whole is built up, not just individual parts. And you guys get this, we've all been to the gym, and if you go to the gym, uh, and you only work out certain muscle groups, right? If you're only doing curls, bicep curls, you guys can tell I've done a ton of those, you know, all this extra. <laughs> muscle space in my shirt, um, if you're only doing bicep curls and you're only exercising those muscles, then the whole body is not actually being built up. And we've seen this, right? Leg days suck. You get jello legs and you can't walk. So we, we like to do upper body and, and not focus on the lower body, but we know what happens and we've seen it, right? You only work out your upper body, you look like this, and then you got little legs. And so this is it, this is exactly what Paul's talking about, about the body of Christ. If only certain members, certain muscles, certain parts of the body are being exercised, the body as itself is actually not growing up. It's not growing up. It's not working properly. And so Paul's vision here is that every part of the body is exercised and that the body is built up. We'll continue in verse 13. Paul talks about unity and maturity next. Verse 13 says, until we all attain or reach uh, the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so here's what Paul's saying, is that unity is a goal of ministry, but it's not easy. Unity is actually really, really hard, but we need to pursue it. And we need to strive for it. We've seen throughout Ephesians that, that in the gospel, Jesus has broken down the dividing walls of hostility and men and women who are different, different races, ethnicities, socioeconomic groups have now been brought together and reconciled as one new man in Christ. But this is not easy. And what Paul's talking about here, this unity, specifically the unity in faith and knowledge, he's actually talking about something a little bit different. He's talking about unity in faith and knowledge is unity in rightly understanding the gospel. That our unity comes from rightly understanding the gospel. And when we rightly understand the gospel, specifically when we rightly understand who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he continues to do, this nourishes our maturity. We mature and we grow. We grow not only ourselves, but we grow as the body united as one by the blood of Jesus. And we grow together through rightly understanding who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he continues to do. See, in the same way that the human body grows up and matures from being a child to an adult, 
You see, this is what the church ought to do. This is what Paul is calling us to do, is that the church should grow corporately as a body into the fullness of Christ. And lastly, verse 14, for the purpose of, so that, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So Paul has been talking so far about corporate growth, about the body of Christ growing growing together, but here we see that corporate and individual growth are intricately linked. And this verse, verse 14, is actually talking about individual growth. You see, all of us, we can all be blown and we can all be tossed to and fro. Every one of us can be tossed by the waves to and fro. We can be blown by the wind. We can be deceived. What are some of the things that toss us to and fro? There's actually a lot of them. A lot of things toss us to and fro. A lot of things pull us away from Jesus. But idolatry is one of the prominent ones. Idolatry tosses us to and fro, and we need to know our idols so that we can resist them. If we don't know our idols, we can't resist them. And one idol that we have both corporately as a church and also individually, is consumerism. Consumerism actually competes with the biblical story. It's a competing narrative that competes with the true story of the world, and the consumerism story deeply shapes us. Consumerism makes us want, but not just want, it makes us crave and covet. It shapes our time and our finances. It shapes our relationships and our activities. Consumerism has captivated us. And due to, due to consumerism, the church is now actually seen and viewed as a vendor of religious goods and services where people can come like a buffet and consume the religious, and goods, the, the religious goods and services that the church has to offer. This is what consumerism does. And due to this, due to this consumerism, some of us, some of us, haven't discovered, developed, or utilized our giftings because we're not serving, we're consuming, and because we're not living in community. You see, God has not given us our gifts so that we can serve ourselves. That's not what the gifts are for. The gifts are for the sake of others, for the sake of his kingdom, and advancing it in the world. Remember the bus, the bus paradigm. This is what consumerism does. Consumerism makes us jump on the bus. And we allow the pastor to drive while we sit passively. We allow them to do all the work while we sit passively because we actually aren't sure that we want to be deployed into the world because it might actually challenge us and make us uncomfortable. It might actually challenge us and make us live in some uncomfortable ways. It might call us to give some things up and maybe sacrifice a bit, and we're not sure if we want to do that. But this is not God's design for his church, and this is not the vision that Paul gives us here either. See, the church is a body with many different parts and many different gifts that need to be utilized for God's mission in the world. So brothers and sisters, the good news is this. The good news is that we don't actually have to be tossed to and fro. We don't have to be captivated by idolatry because Jesus is the victorious king 
who has given us a better story. He not only has given us a better story, but he has invited us to live in the story. And he has not only invited us to live in the story, but he has given us gifts and then empowered us with his spirit so that we can faithfully participate in what he is doing in the world. Amen? All right, as we close, I've got a couple takeaways, kind of so what's for us, two of them here. The first one is that language matters. Language matters because it shapes us. And if we are going to start to think about our work as ministry, if we're going to start to think about all of life as ministry, we need to start talking about ourselves and referring to ourselves as being in full-time ministry. This is like the first step in that because it shapes us. The second is be in community and serve. And once again, God hasn't given us these giftings to serve ourselves, they're to serve others. And so there's, there's a great value in community because actually being in community allows you to discover the gifts God has given you. Many of us don't know what gifts God has given us. For a long time, I didn't know, and people are like, oh, hey, what's your gift? Like, what's your spiritual gift? I'm like, I don't know. But being in community is one of the ways that I started to discover these gifts is because brothers and sisters, as you live life together, they start to say, hey, you know what? You're actually really hospitable. I think you, I think you really have like this gifting of hospitality or you're really good at communicating God's word. I think you have the gift of, of teaching or hey, you know what? This is like prophetic. I think you have maybe like some prophetic gifting or whatever it may be. Like your brothers and sisters in Christ are able to actually see your life and they're able to start to identify And then once you identify, you start to discover these gifts, and then you serve. Serving, the reason why we serve, for one, God has called us to it, it's our identity, but serving is how we then develop and utilize our giftings. So once you discover them, then you get to serve others and utilize your giftings. Once again, your gifts are for the sake of others, and so through serving, you get to serve others with your gifts. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Lord, the the privilege that it is to dive into your word. Father, thank you that your word is active and alive. Lord, sharper than a two-edged sword, that your spirit speaks to us through your word. And so, Father, I thank you for just the great privilege and opportunity that you have given us as your people, that we get to participate in the grand story of redemption that you have written Lord, this mission that you are on, which is as broad as all of creation, Lord, you are reconciling all things to yourself, and yet you call us and you allow us to participate. Father, I pray that that you would use this to stir, stir us, Lord, that we would see our lives differently, Lord, that we would see that we have a new vocation, which is to be a witness. And how are we going to be a witness in the places that you have called us, the places that you have strategically put us in? Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Lord, we thank you that you are alive, that you are ruling and reigning from the throne, that you are the victorious king, and one day you are returning to bring heaven to earth and make all things new. Lord, we love you. It's in your name. Amen.